Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Matt Shirley, and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Hope you've been booking your Easter holidays. Now we know the election definitely won't be until the second half of the year. Unless, of course, Rishi Sunak changes his mind, which is entirely possible. He's done that before. Coming up on today's episode, Keir Starmer says bring it on to TV debates. Firing the starting gun on months of wrangling between political parties and broadcasters. So today we go inside the election debate debate. How do the debates even get on screen? Before that, Night at the Marriott, Indian Night and James Marriott on whether anti-woke comedy is actually funny. And if you like what you hear here on the podcast, you can join me for Politics Without the Boring Bits live on Times Radio, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker or download the Times Radio app. That's Politics Without the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. First on Politics Like the Boring Bits, as we always do on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. Yeah, we learned when the election will be. My working assumption is we'll have a general election in the second half of this year. And he definitely wouldn't say one thing and do another, would he? So, actually, more accurately... My working assumption is we'll have a general election. Yeah, we will. Uh, we learned that Keir Starmer's dialling up his optimism from the previous setting of dysentery outbreak at Dignitas, promising hope. Not the hope of the easy answer, the quick fix, the miracle cure. People have had their fill of that from politicians over the last 14 years. No... They need credible hope. A frank hope. Frank hope? Oh, it makes a change of being frankly hopeless. Uh, We learned that Michelle Hussein loves swearing on Radio 4. There was a time it was reported that you'd called a government policy batshit. There was the personal place you referred to in Parliament as a shithole. No, I didn't. You didn't use the word shithole. You used the word shit, didn't you? Other people said they heard shithole. You're saying you said Fine. We learned that former Tory chairman Sir Jake Berry's tackling the big issues. The Easter bunny is already on the shelf. Easter, 31st of March this year. Let me know in the comments below whether you think Easter is coming to our supermarkets and shops too early. We know that Richard Tice is only asked questions about Nigel Farage. The more help Nigel feels able to give, the better. Uh, But he's got to work that out for himself relative to his other obligations and commitments. And he's 60 this year. Which is a regular reminder that Nigel Farage is younger than Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, Johnny Depp and George Clooney. And we learn that Times Radio listener Andy Scorgy isn't always paying attention. Uh, Anyone you work with who's an absolute nightmare? You what, darling? (laughs) Anyone you work with who's an absolute nightmare? Oh, um, Leslie Phillips. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor over my laptop, frantically bashing away at my column. Yes, it's time for Night at the Marriott. I think I owe you an apology, James. Did we make some sort of New Year commitment? We were going to drop that, that, that clip. Yeah, I'm heartbroken. I was really looking forward to my first uh, New Year's episode of your show without having to listen to that embarrassing clip of myself. Well, once again, all that confirms, James, is that nobody who works on the show listens to the show while <laughs> we're doing it. So can we, we, we now commit that next week we won't have 
James bashing away at his column. And um, get a clip that makes me sound really cool instead. Well, that's, I mean, that's a bit of a tall order. We'll, we, I mean, I'm, willing, I'm willing to go back to, you know, net zero. Uh, anyway, James, how are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, very good, very good. And Happy New Year to India Night. Happy New Year. Uh, good. Nice to have you here. Uh, you, you're, you're happy with us dropping the uh, James Bashing Ways column? Not entirely, no. <laughs> oh, God. That's not very loyal, uh, India. Well, it's not loyal, but it's kind of loving because I like hearing it so much oh, once a week. Obviously. Well, if you, want, I'll tell you what, if you want to get in touch, let's have a, let's have a poll. <laughs> Text me, 8722, start your message with the word times. Uh, should we keep it or should we drop it? And we'll decide by the end of the item. Right. Vote for dignity. <laughs> Uh, well, talking of voting, that brings us on nicely to the fact that everyone's been out uh, during the New Year campaigning this week. I want to play you a little bit of Keir Starmer's New Year's speech yesterday. Your right to be anti-Westminster. Right to be angry about what politics has become. But hold on to the flickering hope in your heart that things can be better. Now, it's, it strikes me, and maybe I'm wrong, but um, India... It's risky, it seems to me, for Keir Starmer to basically transfer Tories to Westminster. The whole of Westminster, yeah. And, and the idea, he's sort of almost weirdly, he's positioning himself as the anti-populist, or I'm not like all that, lot, while playing the populist game of they're all mm. the same, politics doesn't work. Um, and that, that strikes me as quite risky in terms of restoring trust in, in the political system. Yeah, I think it is quite risky. And also, what I would um, welcome from a future administration is measured language, you know, is is kind of the sense that adults are back and everything they say is kind of temperate. Um, we've had, I, it feels to me like we've had so many years of kind of wild exaggeration and hyperbole. And we've said before in our discussions that Starmer's kind of, boring kind teacher inness is possibly a kind of terrific asset to him mm. and i think he should i think he should stay there rather than play with using intemperate populist language also i think if you're going to speak i think this is a problem for him if you're going to speak on behalf of the people then you need to be more identifiably of the people and so it apart from the fact that it's intemperate and therefore not a good idea. It sort of sounds like he's wearing somebody else's coat, mm. you know, when he uses those sorts of phrases. And it's not persuasive or desirable, in what my view. Do, what do you think about this, James? Because I think there was a, there's a, I think maybe David Cameron tried to strike this note a bit post sort of MPs' expenses and going into 2010 of sort of saying, don't give up on politics and parliament as a solution to your problems rather than the obstacle or the cause of your problems, which is sort of what, you know, Keir Starmer, instead of saying you're right to be anti-Westminster, shouldn't he be saying you're wrong to be anti-Westminster? You know, we, mm. we can solve your problems, Joan. Yeah, I, I mean, I think usually I am super allergic to this kind of all politicians are corrupt, Westminster is terrible sort of language, and I think it's a bit dangerous. I find it a bit hard to feel too worried about it when it's coming from Keir Starmer, who every other single thing about him from, you know, his incredibly bland appearance, his bland voice just doesn't scream populist. And as you say, when when you kind of play the clip a bit longer, he, as you say, he ends up in this kind of weird sort of like roundabout definition where he's anti-Westminster because Westminster is cynical and populist. So it's a weird sort of trying to have his cake and eat it and 
I don't know. I think ultimately it's not sort of, you know, it doesn't sound particularly populist. It sounds like a sort of slightly bland attempt to, you know, cover all politically, cover all political bases to be, you know, anti-populist in a slightly populist sounding way, which to me communicates more kind of classic, you know, Keir Starmer fence sitting middle of the roadness <laughs> than it does any kind of you know danger, dangerous. And I you know, that's that's the point. The point that uh, uh, India was making that it feels a bit inauthentic as well. That he's not a sort of it, Nigel Farage saying you're right to be anti-Westminster sort of mm. totally rings true. Uh, with him, you know, he's a man who sort of stands by his public service and he's you know director of public prosecutions and all that and the, and systems and institutions being a, a solution, not an obstacle. Anyway, it's interesting to see. I suspect you know in the end it's probably just a section of a speech will be forgotten, but I was I was quite struck by it. So that's the anti-Westminster mood. What about the anti-woke mood? Uh, and is anti-woke comedy funny? James this week has decided to have a go at comedians like Ricky Gervais. Uh, so, to give you a summer sense, here is a short clip from Ricky Gervais' new Netflix special, Armageddon. They're going to be the first generation that future generations are jealous of, right? Because we had it all, and we're using it all up. We're using up all the fresh water. We're using up all the fossil fuel, right? Usually you look back in history and you feel sorry for it. You go, oh, how did they live like that? Oh, how did they get around? No indoor toilets. I've got nine toilets in my house. Um, <laughs> And sometimes I just run around flushing them for a laugh. <laughs> just so that in 40 years' time, Greta Thunberg has to f*** out of a window. So, James, what's your problem with Ricky Gervais? Well, I don't know if um, anyone listened to his uh, latest uh, Netflix special, Armageddon, but in my view, it was really kind of quite spectacularly unfunny. I, I think, you know, for the record, that Ricky Gervais is a comic genius. I mean, nobody who's seen The Office could think that he wasn't. But he's kind of followed this interesting trend that seems to have emerged in comedy and especially stand-up comedy over the last couple of years, where for want of anything better to say, you say things that are, you know, kind of gratuitously shocking or outrageous, or I guess it's often referred to as anti-woke comedy, you know, because supposedly you can't say anything nowadays and an easy way to you know, be shocking is to say things like the clip we just heard. Um, I, I mean, this, the, the, this this new Netflix special, Armageddon, is full of jokes about, like, how homeless people are horrible, you know, disa about disabled children. And, you know, I, I don't consider myself very woke, but it just strikes me as unimaginative and a bit boring and, and not very funny. And I'm not really sure anyone is that shocked by it. You know, if you look at the audience, as I say in my column, at the Ricky Gervais show, they're all laughing along quite cheerfully, and I'm just not convinced it's that shocking or that clever. So here's a th I actually went to see him live. I saw it in uh, I saw him doing the show in Woking, sort of last September October. I thought it was you know I laughed. I thought it was funny. I thought there were bits where he uh, quite cleverly sometimes says things which are obviously offensive but constructs a joke to the point that the audience laugh and then there's a sharp intake of breath having realised that you've laughed at something you shouldn't have done. Whether or not there's any points to that, I think is a separate question, but uh, I don't know if there's anything wrong with it. India, what do you think? I think that extremely successful Richard Gervais is a comic genius and actually over Christmas we rewatched some episodes of The Office and were nearly ill with laughing. <laughs> I mean, you know, bent in half weeping. Um, so, so that's not in question. I think that the problem with 
setting yourself up or setting your show up i haven't seen the show but setting yourself up or your humor up as um anti-woke is that the brush is too broad you know all of these questions are incredibly nuanced particularly around gender and taking your enormously broad brush to, to to paint over everybody as if everybody was the same and every situation was the same and every topic every so-called woke topic was the same and was as worthy as the other topics of getting a kicking starts feeling really kind of quite old-fashioned you know like those kind of now fully cancelled comedians from the 80s who used to you know your Bernard Mannings and so on although Bernard Manning is a particular case I think but anyway who used to make a point of quote saying the unsayable to as James points out in his column audiences who were just chuckling along yeah, really yeah. contentedly you know they weren't shocked they weren't challenged they were just hooting with laughter having a good night out so I think people constantly saying you can't say anything these days while saying everything they want to say in a in a show on Netflix Dave Chappelle is another example yeah, yeah, yeah. is um is sort of self-referential and and, and and a bit sort of out of touch because clearly they are saying exactly what they want to say to an audience of people who are happy to hear it so it's not kind of edgy or contentious or brave it's oddly comfortable and a bit stale to me it's interesting that's that is I suppose the context of doing because actually I watched over Christmas there was the um there was a documentary on about Carolina Hearn uh, there was mm. a sort of whole, was it, it might have been Christmas Day, a whole night on BBC Two. Mm. Great, great Carolina Hurst. It was a really fascinating documentary about her, including when she was, uh, as Mrs. Merton, interviewed Bernard Manning, and they showed some clips of Bernard Manning. Sort of, maybe I'd forgotten just how awful, just actually racist Bernard Manning was. And I suppose the difference is now, these people aren't being actually racist or actually sexist. They're just sort of saying things which sound a bit like that and going, oh, you laughed at that. It's a sort mm. yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's um, I'm not saying that it wouldn't be nice if people were actually racist again, like the good old days. But that, you know, they're, they're sort, they're, they're, yeah, it's sort of slightly pretending. And actually just get on and do your show. Stop going on about it, deconstructing it and, Mm. So somebody it's the running commentary as well. Yes. The, uh, the running commentary as they do, ooh, shouldn't have said that, or ooh, that'll get me cancelled. You know, so shush, just tell your jokes. As someone who's, uh, well, needs to get on and write a new stand-up show because the tour starts in less than two months, um, I was very aware of all that when I was reading James's column. So I, don't, yeah. James, I will not be deconstructing myself. Uh, yeah, well, I'll be in the audience to do it for you. <laughs> oh, God. God. Can I get you up on stage? <laughs> Get you up on stage, dress you up. I think something. that would be a bad idea. Yeah. I think that no, no one's asking for that. March the first, polls answer. You can Google <laughs> it, mattchorley.com, Get your tickets now. Do you have a favourite independent bookshop? There was a time when all we talked about was the death of the independent bookshop, and everyone's buying them online and reading Kindles and all of that. Well, some figures out today show that the number of independent bookshops that opened last year hit fifty-one up from 49 in 2022. Despite all of the things we talk about, rents and cost of living crisis and inflation and all that, it seems independent booksellers are enjoying a long-awaited renaissance. If you've got an independent bookshop you'd like to ne- uh, let me know about, text me 8722, start your message with the word times. Uh, let's uh, speak now to Sapphire Bates, host of the bookish podcast Novel Thoughts and owner of Book Bodega, an independent bookshop by the seaside in Ramsgate. Hi, Sapphire. Hello. Well, this is this is. I mean, this is the easiest interview ever. What lovely news! <laughs> I know this is a good one. When I was asked, I was like, "Hell yeah, I'll come on and talk about uh, how happy I am that uh, bookshops are doing so well." And why do you think that is? 
Oh, I mean, I think it's a combination of things, but I think, you know, for one, people have got less money to do other things. Although the price of books has gone up, especially if you are shopping with, with independent shops, it's still cheaper than a night out to spend a night in on the sofa with a book. That's really interesting, actually. And, and, and people, you know, it's like the lips—is it the lipstick effect? The, 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 in, a, in a time of recession, things like sales of lipstick or whatever go up because instead of having a big holiday, you start having little treats. So instead of having your extension bill, you might, you know, you think, oh, I'll treat myself to a book or, you know, a new outfit or whatever it might be. Now, James, you famously hate bookshops. <laughs> no, quite the opposite. This is obviously the best news ever. Um, did you, you used to work I, in one, didn't you? Yeah, I did, which which I didn't enjoy, but it wasn't, you know, it was a bit of a strange specialised place that sold very old manuscripts it rather than... Was that. it sort of erotic erotic fiction? Yeah, that's exactly it. That's what I've always, you know, <laughs> that's what I wanted to get into. <laughs> what is it about a bookshop, James? Because if it's about the book, you could just go online to Amazon or other, I don't know, maybe there are other websites, uh, and just get them and come to your letterbox. Why do you want to trudge out and go to a shop? Yeah, well, I think bookshops are way ahead of that, you know, real kind of important trend in modern retailing, which is that you survive on high street by making your shop into not just a place where you buy things, but a kind of experience. So you go to a bookshop and you have, you know, you get a cup of coffee in the, in the article in the Times, they're talking about places that, you know, do book groups, do chess clubs and this kind of thing. And I think bookshops have really been ahead of the trend on that. And they're places that people like to be who doesn't want to be surrounded by by books. Um, I was um, talk. There's a my favourite bookshop in the world, Kilrow Books in North Shields, uh, where I basically spent most of my teenage years. Secondhand bookshop in, in in Newcastle has recently moved, and they now do coffee. And they've got, I think, you know, they've got lovely, you know, those big ladders you get against bookshelves, and they say that people posing on that ladder for pictures and then putting pictures of themselves on the ladder on Instagram is basically, you know, does all their publicity <laughs> for them free. Yeah, people just like that stuff. And, and I suppose in a, in a world where everything is, you know, music is virtual and, uh, um, you know, so much, you know, TV is all streamed and all that, having a thing in your hand uh, is, is you know, that, that tactile thing and you can switch off from the rest of the world. We've had so many recommendations for independent bookshops. Elizabeth says we love our independent bookshop in Cowbridge and Vale of Glamorgan. Uh, the Wallingford Bookshop in Oxfordshire and Mr B's Bookshop in Bath. There's someone, no name on that though. Uh, James says, shout out to Hunt's Bookshop in Rugby in Warwickshire. We've lost uh, everything else on the high street, but Hunt's makes the small town still worth a visit. Uh, um, India, have you got a favourite bookshop? I do. I have um, I have several. One of them is the Aldborough Bookshop in Aldborough in Suffolk, which is amazing and amazingly curated, which I think is one of the things that's so lovely about independent bookshops is you can go in and uh, and ask the books that, you know, say, I feel like it's January. I'm going to, I feel like lying on the sofa as the rain falls down outside. What I don't want anything too demanding, nor do I want anything too inane. What do you recommend? And they tell you and they have all kinds of ideas and you can have conversations about books. You can be introduced to books that wouldn't normally be on your radar. Um, and there's another amazing bookshop that I love called Much Ado Books in Alfriston in East Sussex, which is, um, it's like a world, it's like a, a Harry Potter-esque world, and I really, really recommend it. And they have an incredibly old chicken in the back who's 15. <laughs> wow, chicken in the back. Have you thought about getting a chicken in the back, uh, Sapphire? Um, I mean, I really do love the idea of it. I mean, <laughs> a real chicken. Yeah, yeah, a real chicken, an ancient a kind of an amazing elder chicken. I hope she's still there. She was there last time I was there about six months ago. In the shop? 
No, at the back of the shop. The shop oh. is a the, the shop is the shop is a kind of series of rooms, and yeah. then at the back there's a barn, and in the barn, which you can also go into, which has old books. Yeah, there's a chicken, a really old chicken. Well, every bookshop yeah. needs one. How you're saying this as though this is like totally normal. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the more chickens, the better, really, in all context. Well, I'm, I'm going to give a shout-out for the bookshop in Lyme Regis, uh, partly because it's in Lyme Regis, obviously makes it the best bookshop ever, anywhere. But I was in there uh, only last week, and fact, they had a copy of my book there, which I was very excited about, and I signed it for them, and uh, we ended, I think we made three different visits during the course of three days there and bought books every time, um, just because, you know, it's so nicely laid out and the, the recommendations and all that sort of stuff. Um, we've had so many, so many suggestions for books. Uh, support your independent bookshop. Sapphire, uh, lovely to speak to you. Sapphire Bates there from Novel Thoughts, uh, the podcast and the odour of Book Bodega. Uh, James, some bad news, I'm afraid. Um, we have been absolutely inundated by texts, messages and emails and an overwhelming majority want us to keep this. I was hunched on my bedroom floor over my laptop, frantically battering away at my column. Sorry, James. I, democracy is overrated. Indian Eye and James Marrett there, and you can read the very best analysis every day in The Times and The Sunday Times. Just get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk. Up next, it's the election debate debate. Keir Starmer this week denying he wants to duck out of TV election debates. Look, I've been saying bring it on for a very, very long time. I'm happy uh, to debate any time. It means he's fired the starting gun on months of arguments between parties and broadcasters, even more intense and fraught than whatever eventually appears on screen. So today we go behind the scenes on this relatively new political tradition. Welcome to the election debate debate. Yeah, now the real nerds, of course, will recognise that the theme music is from the very first ever 
general election debate on ITV in 2010. But how did it happen? How do you get everyone to agree? And what happens when they don't? So I'm joined by three people who know better than anyone. Katie Searle is a former executive editor of BBC Politics. She was behind the camera for the corporation's 2010 and 2015 debates and led the organisation over the debates in 2017 and 2019. Hi, Katie. Hi, Matt. Nice to see you today. Good to have you with us. Uh, now, back in 2010, Andy Coulson was on the other side of the table for the, for, for the broadcasters. He was David Cameron's Director of Communications, negotiating on behalf of the Conservatives. Hi, Andy. Hello, Matt. Uh, good to have you with us. Uh, and Adam Bolton hosted the 2010 debate in uh, for Sky News. We'll get his take on it just a moment. Now, of course, uh, from Times Radio. Uh, Katie, let's go uh, ask a very straightforward question then. Keir Starmer says, bring it on. It follows briefing over Christmas that uh, the uh, Keir, Rishi Sunak wants to do debates. Some people told um, uh, the papers that Keir Stummer wasn't very keen. He now says, bring it on. So what is happening behind the scenes right now? How, how do these debates take place? Well, first of all, they should say that for broadcasters, it's incredibly important that they do happen. And the prize is getting that head-to-head. You'll remember some of the previous ones, there were multi-party uh, debates and they're a nightmare to do, which we can come on to. So the key is to try and get those heads-to-heads. And so the broadcasters will be sitting in a room um, and thinking, how do we beat the competition, first of all? Are we going to go first with our bid to go early in terms of general election cycle? Do we go late? And then how do we persuade the key politicians to do it? And um, it's so complicated, I can't <laughs> tell you. I think some of the people think that, you know, people just rock up. And, you know, that would be fair enough to think that as a viewer. You think, well, why wouldn't you? You just come on and do it. But I think I was at the BBC, as you know, Matt, for many, many years. And it was probably the most difficult thing I did was try and negotiate those series of programmes. Because for the BBC, it's a little bit different from some of the other broadcasters. For the BBC, there's a huge complication in terms of impartiality and all those other parties that we have to balance off. So there are many, many, many questions that we can come to. But first off... How do you secure those important head-to-heads at the right time? And I suppose the thing is, you know, in the, in the world of uh, politics, it's still a relatively new thing. Uh, it was only, what, back in 2010 that they, they happened for the first time. So let's talk about how that actually happened, because for so long they hadn't happened. Let's hear now from David Muir. He was Gordon Brown's Director of Political Strategy, talking here about why Labour agreed to do it back in 2010. David Cameron was pretty quick out of the traps, calling for a debate, which I never understood because Labour at that stage, we would go into the election campaign with a, uh, with the Tories having a, a spend ratio of 10 to 1. You know, they had over 20, uh, 20 million uh, pounds that they could deploy. We had at best kind of two, two, 2 million pounds. And I remember putting a, a paper in in May 2009 saying that, you know, effectively we faced a David versus Goliath battle. So we therefore, because of our limited resources, we couldn't battle like in 2005, 2001 and 1997. The papers were uniformly hostile towards us. Labour had been in power uh, for a long time. And my thinking was that if we did TV debates, it'd be the first time that they'd ever be done so there'd be a huge amount of coverage. The more debates, the better, because it would then 
disrupt the momentum of the campaign. And my view was, unless we disrupted the momentum of the campaign, the Tories would get an overall uh, majority. So ultimately, you know, that that was successful because we denied the, the Conservatives an overall majority. We always suspected that David Cameron wouldn't be that good in the TV debate format. We also knew that Nick Clegg would get a lot of exposure, which would dissipate the Conservative advantage. And, you know, we got what we we got what we wanted. So that's the kind of back the background to it. So that's uh, that's David Moore, who was on uh, the Labour team negotiating. Uh, Andy, is it is it right that, that he was basically suggesting that he thought it was a mistake for David Cameron to be pushing for it? Did you think it was a good idea for David Cameron to do this in 2010? I did. I thought it was the right idea, most importantly. Uh, and I felt that we had exactly the right candidate for TV debates. The one thing, I mean, recollections will vary, obviously, between <laughs> David and I as to whether or not as to whether or not uh, it kind of worked, uh, I would make the argument, and have made the argument actually, in, and, and was making the argument internally, uh, you know, amongst the you know my colleagues in the party, because not everyone was in agreement about whether or not we should do uh, did the debates. The one thing that Matt was, uh, the, the one thing that David uh, was absolutely right about Matt was the was the impact uh, for uh, Nick Clegg. And we, you know, we knew that it would raise his profile. Obviously, I don't think I I predicted though that after that first debate, which he, you know, sort of marginally won, uh, 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 that that I would pick up an Evening Standard uh, the, uh, front page that that carried some polling that showed him to be more popular than Winston Churchill. <laughs> that was that was a bit of a shocker. Um, but what, what I always what I always thought though, in all seriousness, over three debates, is that David would. David would win, and and that's exactly what happened. And you know, uh, uh, David makes the interesting point there about sort of disrupting the campaign. That is actually one of the main reasons why I was quite aside from it being the right thing to do. How can you not have TV debates? Was my was my view, and that perhaps is the sort of journalist in me more than the advisor in me. Uh, is obviously the right time to do it. Um, but Labour's campaign machine really was all about a fairly old, particularly under Gordon Brown. Uh, was about that kind of old school start the day, you know, with a press conference, scare the living daylights out of everyone on the economy, run that debate over the course of a day, run it into the next day. And that, that's actually how a Labour election campaign, you know, uh, would, would run under Gordon. That was absolutely his MO. And the TV debates totally disrupted that. So the the campaign became all about, you know, the run up to the debate and then the and then the run out of the debate. You know, afterwards, after the first debate, that didn't work particularly well for us. Uh, yeah. But thereafter, it, it did actually. It, it really did. It really did work for us. It's really interesting because I, I always thought at that point, anyway, I was working in newspapers and I couldn't understand why newspapers were constantly demanding them because actually what we were doing was handing over the entire circus of the election campaign to to telly rather than the interviews and things that we were doing. Adam Bolton, you were at Sky News at the time and Sky was one of the big ones pushing for it. Why, apart from clearly, you know, if you've got the TV show that everyone's talking about, that's great news. Um, why Why did you think there's the right time in 2010 to put the people running uh, to be Prime Minister up against each other on telly? Well, I've always thought that, uh, like Andy, that it was the right thing to do, that the public should have uh, the choice in a fairly formal setting to decide uh, which prime minister uh, they which potential prime minister they prefer. But I have to say two things about this. The only time there have been proper debates was 2010. And they came about for two reasons. One was because Sky News campaigned. 
uh, and was prepared to say, we will stage these debates, even if one of the three party leaders doesn't participate. And the second reason actually is Andy Coulson, because Andy Coulson was advising David Cameron. And I remember we had a meeting where he actually said to us, look, David Cameron is prepared to come on the debate, even if Gordon Brown doesn't turn up. And that really was the crucial lever, uh, which then pretty much compelled uh, Gordon Brown to accept the offer. And David Muir, who you've uh, talked to, makes a very good case for why Gordon Brown participated. <clears throat> but he was the holdout. He was the prime minister. And we were able to force him in. The other thing Sky News did, which is very important, I think relevant now to what's going on, is that Sky News made it clear right from the start that if we brought about a debate, it would be as a public service, it would be available to all broadcasters live. And indeed, once there was an agreement to do the debate, the first thing we did was we went to ITV and BBC and said, look, these debates are going to happen. Do you want to help organise them? And in fact, uh, it was then a common broadcasters negotiation which brought about proper debates. Mm. That is not happening this time. What we're getting is the same old stuff of, you know, is uh, one party leader frit? Is one party leader challenging the other? What are the offers the broadcasters are making? I mean, I think British democracy showed that it wasn't really mature enough after 2010 to kind of build on what we'd achieved. And, you know, my predictions this time around is whether debates happen or not, there'll be scrappy affairs, uh, which will probably play to the vanities of the people who organise them and won't focus public attention in the way in which it ought to be focused. <clears throat> I mean, for a start, I think that uh, uh, Times Radio should be getting a bid in right now to do one of the debates, because <laughs> I think what's going to happen is there are going to be lots of hit and run so-called debates, uh, which actually won't have anything like the sophistication or depth of what we and achieved also, in like, 2010. And the sort of impact, the sort of, you know, appointment of you television, which was the first ones were. Katie, um, explain then, just taking up um, Adam's point. Why were the ones in 2017 and 2019 so different? I mean, not least because sometimes they didn't turn up. Theresa May didn't turn up and they, they weren't neck and neck, you know, all lined up shoulder to shoulder. They were individual ones. What happened in 2017, 2019? Tell us about those negotiations you were trying to have and why it wasn't a replication of the, sort of the three main party leaders shoulder to shoulder uh, as they were in 2010. Well, as Adam there reflects, the you know the, the temperature around all of these really, really changed and just got heated and heated towards the years went on. So in seventeen, obviously, Theresa May didn't turn up. I think uh, the other guests are absolutely right. You have to actually just call it out and say we're going to go ahead because otherwise you just negotiate, 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 and never get anywhere. And in the end, you know the, the danger is they just fall over. So you've got to go ahead. And obviously, Theresa May was you know was left looking. Frit, to use that word, um, in 17, and poor old Amber Rudd was, was left holding the baby, although she did very well. And um, the danger is that with those, with those seven headers, as they were then, is that everyone loses because, you know, the, the, main, the main government representative, in that case, Amber Rudd, you know, is just piled in on. Um, and, you know, it feels very unfair from a kind of impartiality perspective, very, very difficult. And that's a nightmare for the broadcasters before you've even got in the room. But for the audience, it's awful as well, because you just don't really get any proper theatre. There's no proper debate. There's no real narrative. So, as I said earlier, the, the real prize in 19 is to get that that head-to-head -head done. And I think by that point, the people behind the scenes, the government uh, on opposition negotiators, realised that that was a better prize and they had two individuals there that 
could do that and get to the podium. Um, but I should say at this point, and I don't know whether Andy would agree with me because uh, it, was, it was different times, but uh, certainly my experience is you start those negotiations um, really from the political point of view that they think, what are you going to do get, to get me? You know, and it's huge stakes. And you and I completely understand that, by the way. You know, you've got all the way through to this crucial point in, you know, just weeks before or sometimes days before the election date, and you're putting your main guy or gal in front of millions and millions of people. So, you know, as directors of communications, you're gonna have to think, what are the pitfalls? I mean, this could go horribly wrong and it's all on you. Yeah. So, you know, my experience was was unbelievably difficult negotiations, inch by inch, centimetre by centimetre, to try and get those negotiations through to an agreement to that date. And, you know, I've got to say, even going up to that date before we announce them, once you've announced them, there's no getting out of it. But, you know, but getting to that point was was terrifying because you think, well, they're going to pull out at any point. Has ITN got something? Has Sky got something that you haven't got? There was one debate that we, we organised that um, we heard just, I think three days before that there was going to be a mass protest um, outside by you know, a non-political group that was going to wreck the audio and because we'd booked somewhere that wasn't studio tight, <laughs> so we had to move it all. I mean, you know, it's kind of nightmare on nightmare. But as I say, the key is to, to try and get those two key players. And one final point on this, once you've got the players, the, the win for both sides, by which I mean the broadcasters and the politicians, is doing something that is worthwhile for both of them. And there's a real fine line between this, right, which is, do you do something that has a real political excitement? And both Adam and, and Andy will absolutely understand what I mean by that. You know, you've, you've got those moments, you've got that, um, that little bit of argument, you've got that tension, or do you fight out the room and argue against each other through yeah. the whole thing? No one can hear anything. It's a nightmare. You know, the politicians look like children and the audience starts sh- sh- you know, shutting off their tellies. So, you know, that's, that's the kind of prize once you get there is to get that right and that delivery right. It's interesting. I was looking. Was it seventy-six rules agreed in twenty ten? You know, in terms of you know where people stand, the 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 length of questions, the the individual um, your your opening remarks, your closing remarks, and all that. But you don't want so many rules that it ends up being terrible television. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a, a problem. Oh, Adam. Uh, well, I'll come back that, to you in a second, Andy. Adam, yeah, go on, Adam. Because you, yeah, well, you were the one, in 2010, you had to remember all 76 rules and make sure you didn't break them. Yeah, you had to enforce them, yeah. And I had, had, had an appeal against me by the Lib Dems, but uh, off gone back me, so that was all right. Um, <laughs> uh, no, um, no, the truth was that there were some rules demanded that didn't really work. One of them was the audiences. Uh, because uh, it was uh, ruled that the audiences had to be selected by third parties uh, and they had to make an attempt to balance them and the audiences couldn't uh, applaud. Now, what that meant was that you had a lot of people there who didn't really want to be there, who were actually paying feeds, who weren't actually interested in a debate which, you know, tens of millions of people around the country were interested in. And they were also the ones who had to come up with the questions. <laughs> so we had to do quite a lot of work making sure that this kind of uh, dragooned audience uh, <laughs> uh, actually had questions to ask uh, uh, of the candidates. And that, I think, did take away some of the atmosphere. I'm not sure. Uh, I think it's probably right to follow, go down the American model of not having applause and cheering, because I think, frankly, you know, we've seen that on Question Time and it's not great. Uh, but... 
uh, I think that um, uh, we need to get an audience that wants to be there, which we weren't allowed to uh, in 2010. <laughs> Andy, what would be your advice to uh, Rishi Sunak then going going into this? Because I suppose he's he's in the Gordon Brown position rather than the David Cameron position. You know, he's in government, he's behind in the polls. He needs yeah. something to try and electrify. You know, the arguments that David Moore was making earlier about why Labour did it sort of apply to Rishi Sunak this time. So what would be your advice to him? Uh, do them and do as many of them as possible. Um, the first thing I should say, though, is very generous of Adam to credit me on TV debates. I should say very quickly, actually, Adam was the first broadcaster to even raise the idea of TV debates. And then with John Riley at Sky, uh, drove them through. So, you know, they're, they're the ones that really deserve the, the credit from the broadcast side, for sure. Uh, my view is uh, uh, grab them all. Uh, 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 and I take the point, absolutely, um, that the the... The debate that you really want to kind of achieve is the is the head to head. Of course, that has to happen. That you know that has to be the centerpiece, and they have to be sophisticated in the way that Adams described. But I do think the world has changed a bit actually uh, uh, from a from a sort of communications point of view. And uh, and I would be arguing, I think, if I were in the job, uh, as unlikely a scenario as that is now, that uh, that there should be more of them. And uh, and I think they do have value because things have become so fragmented apart from anything else. I'd also, by the way, widen it beyond leaders. You know, um, it might not be a coincidence that David Cameron is now back in government as we're heading towards the potential of uh, TV debates. Um, I would certainly be deploying him. Uh, I'd also be thinking about some of the other members of the cabinet. Right? And that work should start now because... That's the other point, uh, you know, the, the kind of di- the, the uh, discussions that you have to have around the, uh, the putting together of, the, of a debate are long and torturous. I've spent far too many days of my life uh, <laughs> have, have, been, have been lost over the debate of, of, of how the makeup of the audience is going to be uh, is going to be organized. Um, but there's an enormous amount of prep on the political side as well, right? You've got to, it's a tremendous enterprise to prepare for a, for a TV debate. Uh, and I would, having done all that prep, having done all that work, I would spread the load a bit across the cabinet and I would look to do as many as possible would be would be my approach. In fact, I do remember in, in 2010, I remember uh, uh, Alistair Darling, George Osborne and Vince Cable did did some. There were, uh, I think Ken Clark might have done one as well. Um, so, yeah, so, the more more the merrier. More the merrier. If politicians want to come on, on TV and radio, you just definitely have to. Listen, it's been absolutely fascinating insight to the, the, the mad negotiations that have been going on uh, right now. Really good speech. That was Andy Coulson, David. Cameron's former director of communications, now host of the Crisis What Crisis podcast. Katie Searle, former executive uh, editor of BBC Politics. David Murr, who was David, uh, Gordon Brown's director of political strategy. And Times Radio's very own Adam Bolton, who hosted one of those first uh, debates in 2010. And he'll be back hosting alongside Kate McCann on Sunday morning from 10. Let's look now at some of the best and worst moments from previous uh, TV debates. Tom Peck, the Times sketch writer, has to sit through them professionally, so he has no choice. Hi, Tom, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. Uh, so let's let's pick through some highs and lows, and you can tell me what you made of this. Uh, let's rewind all the way back to 2010. Uh, that uh, very first one we were just uh, talking about with um, Andy and Adam and, uh, and Katie. Yeah, fascinating. Um, uh, it, it it was the making of Nick Clegg, uh, not least because everyone kept saying this. Yeah, I agree with uh, Nick. I'm, I'm, see, I, I agree with Nick. I agree with Nick. Uh, Go ahead, they're doing it. David Cameron was doing it a lot. Um, I suppose. What was so good about those, those first debates, there was the novelty of them happening and something unexpected happened, Tom, which is what you want. 
Um, what, in the sense that all the main leaders took part and it hasn't really happened since? Yeah, and, uh, but the unexpected the thing, they, they, you know, Nick Clegg, people didn't know who he was, introduced him to the nation, everyone said, I agree with Nick, he shot up in the polls. It felt like there was something going on rather than just oh, sure. trundling out their pre-planned lines. For sure, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, think the when the election happened a few weeks after, didn't the, the Lib Dems were all wearing their yellow T-shirts with "I agree with Nick" written on, <clears throat> and there was there was talk that he was going to be the next prime minister, wasn't there? And of course, in the end, they actually lost seats. I think so. Uh, plague mania never quite came to pass, but they were. I mean, they were fascinating because they were they were the first ones, and normal people were really gripped by them, and people talked about them on Facebook, and the 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 three main leaders all appeared in them, and they, they certainly it certainly peaked very early, for sure. I mean, the, the counterpoint, and I know uh, Polly McKenzie has made this point on how to win an election uh, previously, is that had the debates not happened, had Clegg not been there and enjoyed that surge of Clegg mania, actually the Lib Dems could have been really, because they lost a, a handful of seats, I think, but they could have been really squeezed mm. out. It could have become a two-horse race between Cameron and, uh, and Brand. And actually, maybe Cameron could have got his majority if that had been the case, if people had been forced to make that choice. So, so... You know, well, yes, that's very losses. interesting. I never thought of that. Yeah, the, the the you know they they started off low, they surged, they came back a bit, but if they hadn't had the surge, they could have just gone backwards. Anyway, it's a, it's a it's a it's an interesting counterpoint. And there would have been no coalition. Wow, no, no coalition. There we are. Uh, in twenty fifteen, uh, there were there were less of these, and they did these sort of things where you'd get, sit down in grilled sky had a thing where you got grilled by Jeremy Paxman, and then questions from the audience. But the highlight's probably this. You understand what the point is here. The point is, people think you're just not tough enough. Well, uh, let, let me tell you. Am I tough enough? H tough enough? Hell yes, I'm tough enough. <laughs> I can't listen to that enough, Tom. Uh, it was great, wasn't it? And I, I remember, you just had Adam Bolton on talking about all the enormous lengths that Sky went to to make these debates happen. And, then I, and I remember all that happening in 2010 and then in 2015. Yeah, I remember Ed Miliband being sort of sat down and grilled by Kay Burley, who sort of asked him five times, you know, you're quite weird, aren't you? You're quite weird. And then and Mailerman sort of trying to explain that don't you know, don't worry, I'm not gonna make anyone go for a pint with me or anything like that. I, like I, I promise. <laughs> and it did seem like it wasn't necessarily the best use of this thing that they had fought so hard to make happen. Um, and I, I suppose that's the problem, isn't it? Is that everyone in 2010 signed up because there was a novelty factor. And then once you knew what it was, you can find even more reasons uh, not to do it. The weird thing was, yeah, then in, sure. in 2017, uh, as uh, Katie was just talking about, 2017, Theresa May calls the election, having said that she wouldn't, and then didn't show up for the big debate, sending Amber Rudd instead. Um, and uh, she was up there with, well, there were loads of them, about two dozen. Yeah, leaders, yeah. Um, uh, it meant the, meaning, well, Loads of them had a go at Amber Rudd. Here's Tim Farron. Now, Amber Rudd is up next. She is not the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister is not here tonight. She can't be bothered. So why should you? And that felt pretty... <laughs> I mean, to the extent that these debates have any impact, you know, in terms of further undermining Theresa May's credibility during that campaign, calling an election you didn't need to call and then not turning up for it. Yeah, totally. And I remember, because Corbyn did that thing where he kept saying, I'm not going to take part unless Theresa May does. And then at the very last minute, he kind of called her bluff, didn't he? And he said, I will take part. And then he turned up in Cambridge and you know, I was in Cambridge. And like since Team Corbyn have since talked about how they like how Corbyn was greeted in Cambridge, like Jesus on Palm Sunday and people were like banging on his car. And you know, mm. Cambridge is quite a Corbyn-y place anyway. And they've said many times that they feel that that debate and the way he was treated when he arrived there, was the point at which they thought that maybe this campaign had felt for a long time like it was going better than they thought. And that's when they kind of knew that actually 
you know, we might not win, but this is going to go a lot better than people think. And they were absolutely correct. And, the, and that debate, Theresa May's absence from that, I would think definitely made a big difference and massively changed things because, of course, she lost her majority in that election and the rest was unimaginably painful history. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. And then obviously in 2019... I mean, you know, it doesn't always uh, affect you if you don't turn up. Channel 4 had a block of ice instead of Boris Johnson. Didn't really affect his... Oh, yeah. <laughs> didn't really affect his uh, his ability to win. Well, they did They did do. Corbyn and and Johnson did do a head-to-head debate, didn't they, on ITV? Oh, and I remember the... Um, I remember the... Just seeing the credits finish and the two of them standing there and Corbyn's glasses were on wonky. And just thinking, you know, like, I'm someone who's had my nose pressed up against politics very hard for... You know, to see it all far too closely and then seeing blindly this really is the choice facing the country and i had a look just before we just before we came on and um i appeared to have written at the time that it re- reminded me of that bit in life of pi where the little boy has to choose between drinking seawater or drinking his own urine um and whilst nothing really happened of great huge importance in that debate i did look and the first question the audience asked boris johnson then was are you really telling us the truth Question three was, how can anybody trust you? And look, look how it ended. Yeah. Um, you know, what, three, less than three years later. Yeah, incredible, incredible. So do you, th- do you think the Rishi Sunak, Keir Starmer ones will happen? Will they be any good? I do think they'll happen, yes. And I think that I may be in a small minority here. I think Rishi Sunak will perform far better than people expect. I think he's quite good in that, in that arena, if you like. And of course... You know this, but the big difference between a British election and a US election is a British election is, you know, 650 by-elections yeah. on one day. And I think Rishi Sunak will, I don't think the Tories will win, but I think those debates will actually and he did he quite stood a few in, Tory MPs in a job. He stood in for Boris Johnson at one of them, didn't he? So he has got some, he obviously did the... Oh yeah, he did, yeah. And he did two, he did the um, the, the leaders ones as well against uh, against yeah, Liz there's been so many debates. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. The, the, the leaders debates happened in 2010 also spawned the Brexit debates, they've spawned countless Conservative leadership, leadership. Televised, televised debates, which wouldn't have happened without that event in 2010. Yeah. And some of those have been historically important, sure. That's it for today's episode of Politics at the Boy Bits. But don't forget, if you're a Time subscriber, which of course you are because you're a sensible person, you get a bonus episode every Saturday. Just head to the show page on Apple Podcasts if that's where you're listening. If you're subscribed via the Times app, you can listen straight away. Otherwise, tap already a subscriber and you link up your Time subscription to your Apple Podcast subscription and you're away. Don't forget you can get in touch in all the usual ways. Email me, Matt, at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.